0: This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Always was, always with me. I'm land. Always always land. hello. My name is Shayla Stonechild, and welcome to the Matriarch Movement Podcast. I am speaking to you from the unceded Coast Salish territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and slowtooth tooth people, also known as Vancouver, B.C., Every week on the show, I share stories of Indigenous women from Turtle Island and beyond to challenge the mainstream narrative around Indigenous identity and offer up a new category of role models so that the next generations may thrive. We'll put a spotlight on issues facing Indigenous women and explore how we reclaim our voice, our body, our power, and our spirit that have been silenced and stolen throughout history and humanity. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe on the platform of your choice. Now let's get to this week's conversation. I'm super excited for this first episode. I felt like I really needed someone from um, this territory to really um, introduce this podcast. She's been a friend of mine for a couple of years now. She was at the first official Matriarch Movement video and photo shoot, and she's someone that I'm constantly inspired by. Uh, I have with me today, Sierra Tassie Baker, and she is a... From the Squamish nation, she's Musqueam, Haida, and Hungarian, and she has completed her Bachelors of Environmental Design at the School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture at the University of British Columbia, graduating with an award in design leadership and receiving a Youth Leadership Award for her work in the community from the city of North Vancouver. Sierra then flew from London, flew to London, England and graduated with her Master's in Science of Sustainable Urbanism at the Bartlett School of City Planning at the University College London, which is one of the top universities in the world for the built environment. Sierra was invited to meet the Queen of England in 2017 for her academic excellence at Canada House in London, England. So Sierra focuses on decolonization through design and she combines indigenous design and research methods. ologies, oral history, primary archival research, traditional ecological knowledge, story of place, trauma-informed design practices, two-eyed seeing, and Coast Salish design techniques to develop unique architectural and urban planning languages that reflect Indigenous sovereignty. Sierra is also one of the choreographers for Butterflies and Spirit, a Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Advocacy and Dance Group funded by MMIW advocate, Laura Lee Williams. So I'm in the presence of a Coast Salish (laughs) powerhouse and someone that I'm super inspired by. So thank you, hi, hi, Sierra, for joining me uh, here today.
1: Thank you. My hands are up to you. Welcome to our territory. Uh, My name is... uh, Obviously, she introduced me, but um, in our way, we introduce ourselves as well. And it's also long-winded. So <laughs> uh, my name is Sierra Tasi Baker. My Kwakwala name is Gesukwela, which means creator or creative one. Uh, I'm from many nations. I'm from the Squamish nation and also part Musqueam here from MST territories and what is uh, currently known as Vancouver. And I'm also uh, from the northern nations. Uh, I'm Kukwakiwak Muskema'wak, Zawadaynok. Uh, Tlingit and Haida on my uh, father's uh, mom's side, and uh, I'm part Magyar-Hungarian on my mother's side. Uh, so for many, many nations, um, and I'm really blessed to be from so many nations and have uh, all these relatives on the West Coast. I feel like I'm related to the entire West Coast sometimes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And speaking of that, um, what is one thing you wish people would know, even myself, because I'm technically a guest on Coast Salish territory, I mean, I'm Cree. So what is one thing you wish people would know about this unceded territory, whether you're a settler or an ally or just a guest?
1: Yeah, thank you for asking that question. And like, I'm, well, one thing is like, I just love more people to ask those kinds of questions and like what it means to Mm -hmm. reinstate like host and visitor Uh, relationships and Mm -hmm. um, myself as well even being from so many nations I'm constantly going between being a host and being a visitor even in my own territory and even between our Mm -hmm. own uh, original longhouse sites and village sites and um, for me it's about understanding that this territory has an identity this territory has host families uh, that still live here. Um, I'm currently tuning in from the village of Slahan uh, from the Squamish nation. And I'm really fortunate to have grown up in my territory and be born where my ancestors were born. And it's a really incredible feeling to be born into this host family, this host nation, and to be able to support, um, our neighboring host nations as well, and have all these kinship connections. And for me, it's about moving away from understanding unseated, uh, just in the land acknowledgements, people aren't really doing the further work. Like, unceded means this territory has never been, our authority has never been extinguished. Um, We still, Cheox, our ancestral law, um, is still established here. Like, Cheox supersedes um, the colonial legal frameworks and dominion frameworks in this territory, uh, meaning that uh, this land is still ours. And Mm -hmm. I'm just going to say it, Vancouver is an illegal occupation. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. that's just a
0: fact. Exactly. And I think that's something I've been toying in my mind actually recently Is you hear all these land acknowledgements, but there's no real action or commitment um, behind it. And so if there was one action that people could do maybe on a daily basis, what would that be to support um, the people that were the first ones that lived here?
1: Uh, I get asked to do land acknowledgements all the time, and I'm going to share something I shared on a panel uh, just last week, actually. I had this dream where I was, uh, cause I'm not only just an urban planning consultant, but I'm also a dancer and um, which I think is very traditional. We always danced and done politics and they've always been hand in hand and been diplomats. But um, in this dream I was backstage and there was um, this white woman who had asked me to be there. And she, in this dream she had on like her headset, she had her clipboard, she looked very official. And, uh, she said, okay, Sierra, are you ready to go on stage and handed me the mic? Um, are you ready to do the land acknowledgement? And in the dream, I ended up having just a, a diva moment essentially, um, and said, um, I don't understand why I need to acknowledge that we're in my own home. You do it. And I handed her the mic and she just looked baffled and that I woke up. It was a really short dream. And I remember waking up after that dream and just saying to myself, I'm, what like sometimes it's appropriate, but I'm I'm not going to do land acknowledgments anymore in my own territory, and I'm going to ask the people that have invited me to do those acknowledgments. Um, but there's a lot of discussion that it's acknowledgments are just the absolute bare minimum, and for me, I think I want to start hearing about uh, not just a land acknowledgement, but pair that with your statement of solidarity with MST sovereignty. Uh, What are you doing to support our sovereignty? What are you doing to support our authority in this territory? What are you doing to support the fact that you're in unceded lands? What are you doing to uh, be actively anti-colonial in your day-to-day work? Um, And what are you doing to help us get our land back?
0: I think that's so important because I've always been saying that too. I think people think just because you're native, you can, you're, you're, you're supposed to do the land acknowledgement. And I'm like, dude, I'm Cree on Coast Salish territory. Like, I can't do the land acknowledgement. It's not. Um, it's not my job, but I also realize it's not your job either. So thank you for sharing that dream. I feel like dreams are powerful in just that sense. So that brings me to my next question is, you said you grew up in in this community, in this territory. What was that experience for you growing up here?
1: I love when I got asked about like my, my childhood. Like I'm very, very fortunate. Um, my parents made a huge effort to be cycle breakers. And like I, like my parents' generation, um, I grew up in my parents' healing and they made this huge effort to go to counseling, to do what they could, um, sorry, to do, to make sure they were in a good position so they could go through that healing work. And it it really shows in my childhood. And my father, who's my uh, connection to my identity, um, just was so caring and loving in how he raised me. And um, like, I never received just a straight teaching from him. I always learned from how he acted, his graciousness, um, the way he comported himself in a room, the way he spoke, or sorry, the way he does speak to people. It's important to be always aware of past tense and present tense. Um, and my dad is a master carver. My dad is Wade Baker. Uh, Heliquium is his uh name, his Quotmash name. And I grew up watching him carve and I grew up watching him uh, create form line and my first interaction I ever had with a computer was actually my dad teaching me a uh, form line. So I have a really interesting relationship to like what it means to be um, Indigenous in a city that just kind of grew up around us. Um, our village sites didn't really move that much where our reservations are and the city just sprang up around us and being able to learn from my father and hear about his stories of growing up too how he used to grow up with wolves that um, August Jack, uh, chief solano, um, used to raise and how he he remembered when they used to live closer to the edge of the beach and then they were uh, forced or asked to move uh, further up. And he remembered the stories of um, my great-great grandparents and aunties and uncles and how uh, they were forcibly removed from our longhouse at Huai And he remembers um, hearing those stories of being forcibly removed from Sanak. Um, and like it's so recent here in this territory. Um, and so like I'm very fortunate that I've grown up with pride. I've never had to carry shame for being indigenous, which is incredible. But then at the same time, um, I'm able to learn about what happened here and uh, colonization Uh, started here in 1792 with um, the early explorers coming here and that's a whole other story that's actually a really uh, unique story and I have a connection to that story Um, but in 1850 Vancouver was first annexed by the settlers so that's only about um, I think 160 something years ago even so that's yeah so recent Um, so we're very fortunate in that even though we have this gap um, in our knowledge basis from residential schools, we've been able to retain quite a lot of our oral history and our chiocs, our ancestral laws. Um, so I, I'm doing my best to learn those from my elders and my community. And I'm very fortunate to have grown up in this community that um, has done so much work to, to keep those those good ways, those uh, uh, those good heart, those good essence ways. Um, for our people and for my generation and generations
0: uh, after me. Yeah, I think that's so important. It's it's amazing. It's amazing to have that direct connection to the lineage and to the stories and also to your lived experience here in Vancouver, actually witnessing um, those changes within your father and also within yourself. And so my next question would be, you know, when did it start? I feel like you were probably inspired by your parents to start decolonizing design, but was that something you always wanted to do or how did that um, happen to you? me,
1: Yeah, so I obviously grew up with my, my dad just always fostering my creativity. Um, my whole family is an artist family, is a design family. Um, it would actually have been weirder if I wanted to be like a doctor or something. We're <laughs> a very like entrepreneurial family. Yeah. Um, and uh, my mom, she, uh, from like the Hungarian Magyar influence, um, came over here and married my dad and she's actually an urban planner, like <clears throat> we like to say her life before us. <laughs> she was an urban planner uh, on the East Coast. And um, when she came here and met my dad, they started a public art company together and she started supporting like large scale public artworks by my dad. So I grew up in this like really incredible collaboration between my parents um, and seeing my dad put up artwork all over the city like huge total like just very epic like I grew up on very epic parents <laughs> and um, my so as I like grew up in this my parents like fostered this creativity in me they fostered me um, I don't I used to be obsessed with this stupid toy called Playmobil but like my parents just got me enough of it that I would create cities so ever since I was little I used to play with cities and my dad would come over and ask me like, oh, like, how are you doing? And I tell him all these stories about this like huge city I started creating. And my favorite thing to do was to build it and then like destroy it with my dad. So that was like my whole childhood. And then, um, and they just like fostered so much creativity in me. And then uh, when I eventually decided, um, I was genuinely deciding of like between going to dance school at SFU or going to London or sorry, going to UBC for design. And I ended up choosing design and I'm really, really happy I did because I'm doing both now. And I feel like if I chose dance, I wouldn't have been able to do design But because I chose design. I can still do both. And um, when I completed my bachelor's and then I went to London, England to complete my master's, I came back and I told my mom, I really want to start an urban planning consultancy. Uh, What would we have to do? And she was like, just say the word. I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, I kept all of my urban planning licensing like all these years. I'm like, okay, perfect. Like, cool. All right, right. we are an urban planning consultancy now. She's like, cool. Like, so we just started back up again. And we've, um, we obviously still do public art. My dad is an incredible public artist, but we're moving more into architecture, urban design, planning, landscape. And the reason for that is um, I feel like uh, like, over the many years of growing up in public art with my parents, uh, I've noticed that um, public art is almost kind of like that land acknowledgement, like, oh, let's, let's just slap some Native artwork on this and call it a day. And I've been getting more and more critical of that, and so I went and got my degrees, and now I'm back and I'm saying, like, you can't just uh, slap Native artwork on the side of a building and say that's visibility. Um, I want the entire process from the first, first design meetings you have to like, the final construction and that like, blessing opening ceremony to be completely rooted in Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh values of this land. And I want people to uh, orient themselves again, like I said, back to the host families. Like, we, we are the sovereign families of this territory and you have to be consulting us, otherwise you're just colonizing this territory and continuing colonization of this territory.
0: That was going to be my next question is, I think, you know, as Indigenous people, we kind of have our own view of what decolonization means. So really, what does the word first, what does the word decolonize mean to you? And then how do you do that through design?
1: Yeah, so I think um, like especially on social media um, and also just in my day to day, I've noticed decolonization is becoming less and less meaningful. And it's really unfortunate because to me, like I have a very specific definition of decolonization in the work that I do. So when I was studying my master's in London, England um, at Bartlett, I went ahead and studied the history of colonization from 1000 AD to present day. Cause like, I need to understand this mechanism. Like what is this monster that we're dealing with um, to name a thing has power, right? So I, um, followed this lineage of uh, the, these papal bulls that the Vatican put through. Um, this, I do like an entire workshop on this and uh, the theoretical framework of genocide that has been upheld throughout the entire legal processes of dominion, uh, something called the framework of dominion uh, that the Vatican was pushing for many years and then it got upheld into science and Darwinism. And then that came over and like started affecting design and um, how modern architecture upholds um, like anti-Black, anti-Indigenous racism, um, how it upholds uh, colonial dominion frameworks and how and also how uh, these colonial mechanisms of genocide got upheld in uh, the legal uh, framework of the canon laws of Canada and how that then got inducted into the institutional language. Um, and political and policy language uh, that we deal with today. And there's this direct line that I found of dominion language and dominion frameworks. So to me, the definition of decolonization is to literally dismantle the framework of dominion. So all those papal bulls, all that paperwork, that language, um, that entire framework that has been built around us, that we deal with every day, that is, um, that the, is literally built um, to enact genocide on our people and to enact dominion uh, on our people. So that's, that's point blank. Like, like, decolonization is dismantling the framework of dominion. Um, so it's unfortunate for me when people are saying, like, decolonization as a metaphor. And obviously I do this too in my daily life, like, decolonize your closet. But, <laughs> um, but at the same time, like, when I, when I say decolonize, it has that power behind it of like, I, I know what I am working towards dismantling. Um, maybe there will, will be better words too. like. I'm not precious about the English language. It's not our original language, and I'm happy to keep updating words and keep being on top of um, trying to trivialize and trying to um, lose the meaning of these words and come up with new words. Um.
0: Yeah, I felt like I was really focused on, like, decolonizing, like, decolonize your closet and all these little things, but then I was like, wait a second, like, I don't feel like what my decolonization view is, is really rooted in, in the way that you are mentioning it right now is like, what systems are we literally dismantling? And how are we doing it? And can you study the history to know that how we got here, I feel like before I can really start, you know, decolonizing something, I really have to take that time to know the history, and also the history of the land that I live on. That's why I also am always inspired by you, because I have to admit that I can be ignorant to even, um, even though I'm native, I don't know a lot of the stuff that happened to us outside of just what's happened through my lived experience and so thank you for providing a framework for other people and the audience to hopefully start um, you know even just dropping that piece of knowledge to you know ignite a light bulb within themselves and so when you decolonize design what does that look like cuz I'm like yeah what does that look like in your in your mind
1: it's so I had to make this decision of do I want to go the architecture typical like be an architect intern for years get sequestered away at a desk and figure it out like later in life and I was like we don't have time like I don't have time for this so I started this consultancy with my my mom and my dad uh, Mary Tassie and Wade Baker and uh I guess like two years ago um, but this is a continuation of the work that I've grown up in for 25 years. <laughs> um, it's the same company, it's because my mom just happened to keep all these urban planning. Like, I'm like, why are you a genius, mom? <laughs> like, <laughs> how did you know? <laughs> um, but point being is I'm developing this in real time. So I'm really fortunate that we are uh, winning all these contracts and just trying to figure this out in real time. And for me, I keep being asked, can you just write up design guidelines for us? Um, and I keep being asked, like, what are like, Coast Salish design guidelines? What are Musqueam, Squamish design guidelines? Um, and I'm really cautious about that, or like, even cautious about um, talking about like, what is our process. And because there's so many culture vultures, there's so many people that like, this is new, like, this, this hasn't been done before in like, the urban realm uh, and there's so many architects out there that are still um, they still have like all these white uh, men in charge of things that are just trying to be like, hey, like, what's your process? Like, I want to know. And I'm like, no, like, that's not I can't just hand you a piece of paper and tell you, like, this is closely design. design. Um, and I have to be so cautious how I go about it. So that's why I've been having trouble. I think we talked about this the other day about. Being public about a lot of what I'm doing but that's, that's my goal is to be able to start like really disseminating this and like disseminating these solutions that I found are working um, because I don't want to create design guidelines or create a specific building and be like this is Coast Salish design I really want people to realize that each site is unique uh, and you have to be in communication with a like a real person from this territory to do this work so like almost like, <laughs> I almost just want to be like, if you want design guidelines, you have to hire me or someone from Musqueam, Skalmash, and tsleil Youth to do this work. Like this isn't something I can just hand you and you're, you go off and that's appropriation. That's appropriation then. And that's like handling that situation. So it's a lot of responsibility to ensure that um, this work is being done in a good way. And for me even like we haven't yet uh, fully realized all these projects that have just just started. Uh, from last year and this year and for me like until I actually sit in like a completed design that I've worked on am I actually going to know if this works like is this the right way to do this like like me sitting on these design teams uh, ensuring that like we're rooting at MST values but then no matter what I'm still going to be sitting in a space that's concrete or that um Obviously, like we're incorporating like things like medicine gardens, uh, traditional use, uh, ensuring that like our spirituality, our values, our chioks, our ancestral laws are upheld in design. But until I'm sitting in my medicine garden, uh, and until I experience like what it feels like to be in one of these designs, am I actually going to know if what I'm doing is working, and if it's the right way forward? Um, or maybe there's something even more like, am I dismantling this the right way? Am I? really getting to the root of this or am I still helping a colonial body um look good and feel good about what they're what that they're occupying our territory so it's it's a lot yeah well I
0: was gonna I was gonna say you're literally like trailblazing an industry that it's never been done really uh that was gonna be you kind of touched on it's like what are some challenges that you face in this line of work? You kind of touched on appropriation, um, but what is one challenge that you've, yeah, you've had to face doing this work?
1: Uh, (laughs) It's daily. Yeah. Probably (laughs) a lot. (laughs) It's daily. So like for me, it's just been self-care, like support from my partner. Like I, (laughs) um, I have to make sure I'm good, like all the time. And I think that's the biggest struggle for me, Um, especially like, I've grown up, luckily, like I've grown up in my parents' healing, like I said. So I've had a lot of really healthy modeling of how to do that. But it's still difficult, especially when it's every day. And like a lot of the time, I want to be like on the front lines, or I want to be supporting uh, my friends that are getting arrested, doing like sit-in work or land defense or water defense. Um, but because of the line of work I'm in, like I'm sitting here at my desk and just like hoping that what I'm doing is is the best way forward. And it's really difficult, I I don't know if you can hear, I'm getting a bit emotional, but um, so I think it's just that like need to really want to be like constantly supporting my community. And I do my best to do that. Uh, But then also because of what I'm doing, like not always being able to be on the front lines and supporting like my friends and and the people that I care most about. And I remember when I was in uh, London, uh, studying my master's, um, that's when Standing Rock was happening. And it was like the It was such a big struggle for me because I just wanted to be there. I just wanted to be there and and help. And uh, that was a big learning curve for me, though, because I was my mental health was deteriorating because I just didn't feel like being in the center of like colonial, (laughs) the heart of colonization and studying in this like colonial institution and like being like, is this going to work out? Is this like the best path? But then I got asked to do a presentation to uh, one of the companies that manages uh, quite a few of the uh, people who fund uh, that project, like those pipeline projects. And I was able to give a presentation to them and and explain directly to these funders and uh, directly to the stakeholders in the project, like this is why you need to take indigenous rights seriously and it was just a very bizarre experience because I had to speak like that language of money to them because they weren't like, <laughs> they don't respect our rights. And then I, it was just such a hard process too, like to be in that space and that that meeting and have to like, like, okay, they're not listening to what our rights are, like our inherent sovereign rights, but they're gonna listen to money. So it was just, it was a really bizarre experience, but I'm like, okay, like there's levels to this. Like there's different, different, um, different actors in this that uh, can do the work where we need it most and it was just, yeah it, london was really difficult like on my mental health
0: i think um I think that's something I've also been learning, I can relate in a totally different way, is this um, burnout feeling of wanting to do everything all at once and also supporting your community and being there for one another. And people don't really see what's happening behind the scenes. They don't see the amount of work that that you may be doing or the challenges you may be facing, and so, Yeah, I think moving forward is like, how can we support one another so that we don't burn out so that we come back to community so that we come back to the values of not always having to be running after it's the capitalistic clock, essentially, like, they always want us to be in a state of doing and achieving when actually we need to be restoring and also resting. And that I feel like is also decolonized decolonization in itself that brings me kind of to my next question is what keeps you inspired and how do you reclaim your power when you are feeling burnt out or low energy
1: yeah thank you for trying to ask this question myself to myself for (laughs) the past year um something that uh, i've noticed helps me the most is is staying in my truth or staying in the truth um and, like, I'm very fortunate, like, that I've helped myself create this framework of understanding colonization from this, like, archival historical analysis, too. And for me, like, when I'm feeling really upset and, like, kind of, like I said, like, the biggest challenge for me is getting in my head, like, getting internal, like, feeling like I'm not doing enough or uh, I'm not doing this in the right way or am I doing this in the right way? And then remembering, like, why am I struggling so much when, like, this emotional labor is is the responsibility of the settlers, is the responsibility of the colonizers. And I remind myself like this weight on my shoulders um, is not mine to carry, that's the transformation work that they're refusing to do. And that transformation work that um, they're not upholding, like we're literally trying to carry their weight, their emotional weight, like their unhealed trauma, like their shit. And when I remind myself of that, I'm like, okay, that's not my responsibility. Like I'm out here trying to express indigenous joy through design, like trying to express indigenous solidarity through design, trying to express indigenous sovereignty through design. Um, it's not my responsibility to do their healing work for them. I can definitely point them in the right direction because I, I came across quite a lot of clues of how to do that when I was studying that history. Uh, and I'm also part Hungarian. There is, um, there is a role to play on my Hungarian side as well. So I understand from that side of my family uh, the work that we're doing and like the work that we've taken responsibility for. And that's what I think is a template for settlers and colonizers, is that um, they need to look into their own history. They need to stop thinking that they're in this like, post-colonial period and that their predecessors were responsible and that they're not. And they need to take responsibility for their lineage. They need to take responsibility for their personal history. Learn it, uh, be proud about the cultures that their own families uh, uprooted and their, that their own families um, rejected, and then they lost their ancestral teachings. And because of that, they don't know who they are, they don't know where they stand. So if they can do that work to know where they stand, then I can actually have a proper conversation and be like, hey, this is your responsibilities in my territory and globally.
0: Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like um, that's also what I've said. I'm like, you need to do some inner work. Like, where do you come from? Who are your answers? ancestors where is your lineage from and what uh, role did your ancestors play in the making of this history and can you accept that so that you can then later be aware so that you can heal transmute and transform and then we can reunite but it's essentially like nothing's going to happen in the world collectively if we first don't do it ourselves uh so you've kind of already mentioned this um but who who do you really look up to? So when you think of the word matriarch, I know you mentioned your mom who kind of paved the way for you and I can really relate to that. My mom also paved the way for the work that I'm doing and she gave me her nonprofit number two So I feel like our moms just knew what was up. They're like <laughs> Um, but so what does the word matriarch mean to you and who are some of the matriarchs that you you are inspired by? Thank
1: you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're so fortunate, right, that like our our parents are like very supportive and like I'm really cognizant that that's not the case. And like for me, it's like I would love to like doing everything. Hey, but like I would love to be able to to eventually go into work of like helping families um, build capacity for themselves. And especially when I'm like from these coastal families, like lineage is huge, like and building um, generational wealth and prosperity is huge in our culture. And all of that I learned from my grandmother, uh, my late grandmother. So she's like the true matriarch of the family. Um, oh, just to note, like my, my mom is, is, is Hungarian, uh, Magyar, and she's non-indigenous, um, but there is this word in our language for when you marry in, this really beautiful word for when you marry into the Skotmish nation, um, which is like her role. Like she still has a role. Like it, it's it's part of our Chiaks and um it's this word that essentially means like we're so grateful to you to have like essentially sacrificed your your, the other lives you could have had to be part of our nation it's such a beautiful sentiment but um i'll just continue but my so my grandmother is a true matriarch so uh emily nelson baker tlacogilogwa uh from kukwakuwa tlankit and haida um she's a descendant of many, many chieftains uh, from from the north-west uh, coast. And she she was also a chieftain when she was uh, four years old, I believe. Um, her village had been wiped out due to smallpox in um, Fort Rupert, I believe, that area in kokakiwak miskumag territory. And um, her father and the other chieftains at the time recognized her qualities when she was that young and they're like this like she will uphold our people so because of survival um because there wasn't like those families were wiped out uh she was then uh gifted four chieftainships four like (laughs) normally you hold one in your lifetime and she was i think four years old and, and gained four chieftainships um for the survival of our people and the survival of those those coppers and um She's held herself in that way um, ever since she was born. Like they saw that in her. And um, not only was she this four copper chieftain, but she was the matriarch. And that's such like an incredible um, combination to be both chief and both matriarch. And I learned so much from her. And she didn't speak a lot. Like if anybody knows her, she was the queen of one-liners. <laughs> and but at the same time, like everything I learned from her was just through being around her. Uh, I was just through like hearing how softly she breathed, like everything from how she moved uh, on this earth to how softly she walked to how she held herself around other people. like that's how I learned um, our our laws, like the, our way of being. She always said, "Be humble, like be humble, be humble." And I think like I've thought a lot about that like as a as a performer, as a Leo, as an extrovert, as, as someone uh, in the public, literally doing public design, um, I've thought about that a lot and just reminded myself, um, when you come from a family of so much prosperity, of so much wealth, like, you don't need to say anything. Like, it's just about, and in our way, like, wealth and prosperity in the, in the Northern Potlatch way, like, wealth is what you give. Like, you are wealthy based on how much you can give. Uh, you are wealthy on how, how much you can provide prosperity to your people, how much prosperity you can create. And that's why, like, when my grandmother, Tlako logo, a copper woman, when she gifted me the name Gesu uh, um, she said it meant creator, a creative one. And the beautiful thing about our names is they have so many meaning, meanings, and those meanings come to you throughout life. And that's by design, right? And uh, I've been learning more and more about my name. Like, Gesu means to carve, like the root word, uh, which I think is beautiful because my dad is a carver and he's the one who's been teaching me. And then it essentially means um, to carve wealth into this world or to carve the supernatural into this world. And that's that's what I'm doing. I'm doing my best to, to carve into this world prosperity for uh, myself, my family, uh, my nation, and, and hopefully as many indigenous people as I can. And even what I was talking about um, earlier, like carving out prosperity and um, these ways of being for for many nations
0: and so for many nations and many gen- generations speaking for specifically for the younger generation what would your advice be to uh you know someone that looks up to you that kind of wants to do what you're doing what would your advice be to the younger indigenous youth
1: Uh, I'm so inspired by the youth that that (laughs) are inspired by me like the youth are our future Um, but it's interesting because I can only speak from my unique path and my unique path has been going in and out of colonial institutions colonial boardrooms like colonial spaces and really think like really really thinking about like is this the right space to be in and I saw this meme yesterday which was I forgive like forgive me ancestors for the rooms the tables that I wanted to sit at that you would have flipped Uh, it's like thinking about that a lot Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. okay like am I (laughs) um so yeah like it's it's just be very critical like and I think first root yourself in your family like your family's teachings like root yourself in what you what knowledge you can find and a lesson that I've learned through like my mom isn't just an urban planner she's a archivist and a historian and my dad is an oral historian. So growing up around like this archival, like two-eyed seeing approach, which is like the archival Yeah, I was gonna yeah. ask you what,
0: what that meant. <laughs>
1: yeah, so like that two eyed seeing approach of like uh, my mom's like archival, like sitting in there reading every word, like figuring out all the dates, and then my dad's which is like the oral history, like this incredible ability to memorize information without words or without written language, and um growing up with both of that. Uh, Realizing that I think a lot of like this, there's this topic right now of like finding your roots and how hard that can be. And that's by design, like colonization intentionally ensured that it's hard to find these this information, that it's uh, against our oral history or our our indigenous ways of knowing. So it's even traumatizing just being in an archive or just trying to do this like research and looking at a bunch of graphs like this doesn't make sense to me. Like that's by design and like for sure feel those emotions. Um, but if you can work through it or even if you can find someone who can help you with that two-eyed seeing approach, um, that information is available even if it's really hard, it's really hard to find. What I've learned is that as we were researching our family history, there are things that I thought would just have been like completely lost and uh, just surprising ourselves when we actually were able to find information. And a lot of the times we'd go into archives and uh archivists are still like hiding documents from us and we're like hey can we look at like the family trees and like oh we don't have those and then I'd be like okay cool great thanks and then I'd send in my mom so without me and she'd be like hey like can I you know like that like white lady voice like hey can I blah 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 (laughs) (laughs) um and they're like oh sure no problem and then my mom's like texting me from like inside the archives like look what I found look what I found look what I found and it's just really how to explain this Like it's really hard to do this work um, because colonization is designed to make it difficult and to disappear this stuff. And it's about being realistic, but also staying in a space of futurism, like staying in that space of like, this is how it is, but this is how it should be. And sticking to that authority and your inherent authority and like how these processes should be, but also recognizing how they are um, and then dismantling and changing it and making it better. So I guess, like, my advice is, like, I don't even know what that is. Like, it's just, this is hard, this (laughs) is hard work, recognize that, take care of yourself
0: hmm And I think, yeah, coming back to your roots, for me, I can definitely relate to not having that direct lineage or tie to those stories anymore because my father passed and because he went to residential school and he was in the prison system. And even when I tried to get, you know, files from that, I couldn't. So, it's I mean, I recognize how hard it is for us. But I also feel like there's this, um, like, your bloodline also is, like, innate within you. Like, you cannot not have it. So, I feel like even if you don't know as much, just your ancestors are still with you in a way that they've gone to the spirit world, but they're still here in your physical reality. So I try to connect and talk and I have messages sometimes come through my dreams. Like what you said when, when you had that dream about the land acknowledgement, I feel like dreams are also powerful and there's also other ways that your ancestors can, um, connect with you or send you messages too. And so that kind of, um, Brings me to my next question is, you mentioned this um, topic of indigenous futurism. And so first off, what does indigenous futurism um, mean to you? And then what do you hope it kind of takes or transforms here in Vancouver in itself? Because you are doing so much um, work around decolonizing design. So what does indigenous futurism mean to you? And how do you see that within your own life here in Vancouver? Yeah,
1: thanks. I I think even just starting with like what you're touching on about blood memory and like kind of what I was talking about before is is like just managing the emotional labor of doing that, like the Western way, the white way of, of things and how hard that is. But then, like I said, my dad has taught me this oral history way, this incredible, and my grandmother has taught me this incredible oral history way. Um, and that, and like as I've grown up throughout my life, realizing that I know more than I thought I did. And my grandmother always told me, Um, she doesn't know very much and she was so sad when she said it. And the more I've grown up, I'm like, wow, she taught me so much, like from just the way she acted, just the way she was. And um, when I would be at events um, and I'd feel like a, a reaction to things, like that's not right. And I'd be like, why do I know that? Like, why, like, why is my body telling me something's off here? And then the more I'm doing this work, the more validated I am that like, my body knows the protocols. Like, our people have been here for over 809 generations, like my family. Like, that's over 16,000 to 60,000 to 80,000, but that doesn't matter. That's just the the white way of saying it, like, since time immemorial. Um. So, like, our bodies know these protocols. Like, our ancestors have lived in these protocols for generations on generations. Like, your body will tell you um, the way that our ancestors um, did things. So, like, I think that, like, what you said, Shayla, is so important, Um. They had to talk about indigenous futurism um always whenever talking about futurism it's important to acknowledge that futurism um was created innovated um so on and so forth by the black community and uh black future afrofuturism and just to recognize that afrofuturism is this incredible technology uh that is in it that is innovated and continually innovated by the black community. To celebrate black joy, black spaces, and black centered spaces. And I think the most, uh, currently the most visible um, Afrofuturism piece of work is obviously Black Panther. Um, And it's about, and like in Black Panther, the premise is like, what would Wakanda, or what would um, an Afro centered city look like without the influence of colonization? And I think that's just like such a powerful tool and mechanism, that's why I I try and express solidarity with the black community all the time, as it were. And also like in my uh, analysis of the history of colonization, uh, we're both uh, affected by by colonization. And to bring that solidarity together and be like, how do we dismantle this thing? Like, how do we dismantle this monster? Uh, And the black community has some really incredible technologies um, and like here in, in what is so-called Vancouver, we've been dealing with colonization for about 200 and or so years. Whereas in <laughs> Africa and other places, it's been thousands. Um, and even for, for like your nation, like the Nehiyaw nation, like it's like over 500 years of dealing with colonization. So that we have a lot to learn from each other and how to dismantle these things. And um, for me, that the concept of like center indigenous joy, uh, center like, what would um, a city look like without the influence of colonization? And you're like, longhouses, it would look just like it did, like, 300 years ago. Like <laughs> So, like, how do we get back to that? Like, how do I ensure that I can have my daily practices? And I think with futurism, obviously, it's this idea of technology. But what I've been uh, learning from my elders is technology doesn't have to look like technology. Um, there's this concept of traditional ecological knowledge, which is just... A fancy English word for this incredible breadth of knowledge that we as Indigenous people have from living with this land for so long, and if you shorten that word, it's it. The acronym is T.E.K. So T.E.K. <laughs> so I like to say that that's our technology, um, and that technology is in direct relationship to the land. And then um, I know there's so much to say about it, but I'm just saying what I was coming to mind right now, but. Um, I was learning from this incredible Maori choreographer the other day at a talking stick festival panel that I was uh, witness to. And his name's Charles, and he was talking about how in Maori, there's this word "modi," which means like the spirit of things. You don't know it yet in in Nechem, but um, I think it's it's mostly like universal in our across nations that we believe that all things have a spirit. And Modi is like that spirit in, in Maori culture. And he was saying that even computers have a Modi and like all those materials of that technology are from the earth, that there's metal, there's electricity, like all of that is still from the earth. And there is a Modi um, of that computer. And he was talking about how uh, in Maori culture, there's these like concepts of the profane and the sacred, and we can interact with the Modi of, of a spirit in either profane or sacred ways. And that if we rethink our, our relationship to technology and recenter our indigenous ways of interacting with tech and technology, that we can really shift and disrupt these like technological spaces and recenter indigenous ways of being. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. Like <laughs> that's a really good that's teaching. Powerful. Um, that's powerful. So I was like really honored to bear witness to that teaching. Uh, and as a witness, it's important to like disseminate what you learned. Um, so that's like part of, part of why I'm sharing it. Um, But yeah, like in terms of like technology and disruption, like we can center technology as much as we want. It's not um, outside of our culture. And I remember talking to an elder, Microtastic, he was saying like, If we had microphones back in the day, we would have used them. There's like over 600 people at this potlatch. Like, (laughs) like, (laughs) like we've obviously learned to have huge voices because of this for years. But he's like, yeah, that would have been great. Like, so technology isn't um, clashing with us as Indigenous people, and we can recenter it and reclaim it how we want to because we've been innovating different technologies for thousands and thousands of years. Um, It's not new to us
0: i know that you have uh, designed quite a few murals um, here in vancouver and so i'm curious to know is there any way that people can support the work that you're currently doing or going to and i also want to be uh, mindful i want to ask more questions about the dance group that you're a part of too but i'll start with um how can people support you in the work that you're yeah, doing
1: I just assume, um i guess just like <laughs> follow us on social media uh at sky spirit studio uh, my personal, obviously, Sierra Tassie Baker, but um, a lot of like our solution-based thinking is on our Sky Spirit Studio accounts and also the MST Futurism account uh, with uh, definitely follow MST Futurism. That's where a lot of these like innovative ideas are coming from. And also, like I created MST Futurism because like my voice should not be the only voice in these conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I truly believe uh, everyone should be empowered to talk about design, critique design, critique urban planning. I think as Indigenous people, um, we need to hold these developers, these colonizers, these designers, these urban planners accountable, and demand better from them. Like I think what's happened is we've, um, like we we don't realize that we can demand so much more from them uh, than what they're currently giving mm-hmm. us, and they're just giving us breadcrumbs. Like, hey, here's a public art piece, and like we're happy with that. And like no, yeah. like, we. No, like incorporate us throughout the entire process, like start building capacity. I think that's for me, like supporting capacity for more host youth to be designers and more indigenous people in Mm -hmm. general. Like how incredible would it be if every single nation had like designers, urban planners that can design in their own territory from their own teachings, like what they want to see in that land. Like what an incredible future! Instead of always hiring out Mm -hmm. these white architectural and design companies to come in and try and like figure it out, and they have to like learn our teachings, and like we're not sure if that's like a good idea. Like, wouldn't it just be better if we just Mm -hmm. had all these indigenous architectural and design firms Mm -hmm. that can do our own work for our own nations? Like, how beautiful would that be? So for me, like capacity building, and then just like keep up to date with what we're doing. But for me, like as much as you can support capacity for indigenous youth getting into design, I think that's like the next trend I want to see. I think there's this great trend mm-hmm. of people going into law. Um,
0: yeah. Like I want it. the next
1: trend to be like indigenous youth being like, I want to be an urban designer, or, like an urban planner, or an architect or a landscape architect. Cause there's so much power in that. Like actually like working with the land and working from your teachings mm-hmm. in, in your own territories. Like that's, that's my dream.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good dream. I'm, I'm, I'm going to wait for it. I <laughs> want it to happen <laughs> ASAP. Um, so that's one way that you can support Sarah and her decolonizing work. Um, and yeah, just thank you for being the first official guest on this podcast.
1: Gentlemen, Tomia, uh, thank you for your kind attention. And thank you so much, Shayla, for including me and involving me. Um, I feel really honored to be the first on your podcast. And I uh, Really honored that you asked a, one of the host people of this territory to be on your podcast to open it up. So Kayetchen Chenkomen told me up, and you're doing great work. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I would love your feedback. Follow me on Instagram at Shayla0h at metriarch.movement. And don't forget to subscribe on the pod platform of your choice and review and rate where possible. I'll be back in a week. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for tuning in.